I thought we'd just start with a quick illustration. Um, so, I need, if, if we were to think of the kind of worst sinner in history, we might think of Hitler, Stalin, Jezebel, the prophets of Baal, something like that. So Matt, you're going to represent that group, okay, and I need you to go stand over there. Yeah, just you. Right on that side. No, no, go, go, go as far away as you can. It's fine. Don't go out the door. No, stay. Okay. That's fine. Yeah. Okay. So Matt's there. All right. Um, hang on. Okay. Micah, you're just you. Okay. You're Micah. Okay. I'm going to ask you. I'm not, I'm not saying anything about Micah in this. I'm, I'm just going to ask you to stand by here. Okay. All right. And now, Matt, I know that you or righteous, and I know you read your Bible, um, and you spend a lot of time with the Lord. So if you would just come stand about here. Okay. All right. Now, this side of the middle, thanks, because God's over there, people. Okay. God's there. No one, no one can represent God, so sorry. Um, but God is there in that corner. Okay. Amanda, you can come here. Okay. So, <laughs> all right. Actually, Amanda does get past halfway. All right. So, um, Look, if we look at these, these fine people, yeah, quite often we can, we can uh, live our Christian life in this sort of fashion, okay? Like, Matt knows he's better than Hitler, okay? Yeah, you hope so, don't you? Yeah. You haven't killed millions of people. Yeah? You haven't sacrificed anyone to an idol. None. None of that, yeah. So, <laughs> so you stay there, okay? All right. So, you, you, so you feel pretty good about this position, okay? Okay. Um, Amanda, you know, you're, you're a woman, you're, you're righteous, you're holy, you love the Lord, okay? So, you're just a little bit further. It's much easier for women to be righteous, obviously, okay? Um, and so, you know, so we can, we can live our Christian lives like this, can't we? It's like, you know, some of you know Micah from Taylor, and you're like, you know, I know I'm better than Hitler. <laughs> actually, I know I'm a lot better than Micah, actually. I've seen some things he does. So, I think, you know, I'm over here. You know, and if I would just read my Bible a few more times a week and... Worship a little bit more, you know. Maybe I can get here. You know, and then, you know, there's those people like Mother Teresa and Francis of Assisi. You know, maybe, I, maybe I can be like the Apostle John and truly love God. Um, and then we, 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 we kind of wonder how far we can get away from that. Okay. On this, <laughs> on this spectrum. Okay. Okay. Um, is this a real analogy? Is this a good analogy? I see you not, you're shaking your head. No. Why not? Why, why is it wrong? <laughs> so when, when God's looking at us and he sees Matt and he sees Amanda, what does the scripture say? Yeah. We've all fallen. Yeah, we've all fallen short. Yeah, so Matt can say, yeah, yeah, you're all falling. Come down to Matt's head. So, and that's the truth, okay? So actually, like, we're actually all down here. And, you know, and we could put God on Pluto, and we still couldn't take too many more steps towards him because he is so holy. And so the Lord doesn't look at us as a spectrum. He looks down on us, and he says, you have all fallen short of me and my glory. And nothing that you do is actually going to get you there touching me in my presence, okay? Because there is only one who was able to touch me because he was perfect, and that was Jesus, my son, okay? 
You may now sit down. Thank you. Yeah, that was beautifully. <laughs> Thank you so much. Well done, Matt. Good performance. Um, so <laughs> now, a few, a few weeks or months ago, you know, I, I often tell you, well, sometimes tell you stories of Smith Wigglesworth, because he's my favorite crazy Christian. Um, and if you, I, I won't tell the whole story because it's quite long, but if you will recall a few months ago, and maybe those who haven't heard this, I'll just tell it enough, but there was this story of Smith um, when he was in New Zealand um, leading a revival, and he's, and he's in a tent before the meeting. I know you guys have heard this in all politics. Okay? He's in this tent, uh, and in the tent are only priests and pastors, okay? holy, righteous people who lead you know, churches. And, and Smith prays for the presence of God to fall. And, and the Holy Spirit fills the tent. And the guy who's telling the story says that as, as the Holy Spirit filled the room and filled the room and filled the room, the people started to leave, these men started to leave the tent because of the holiness of God, and they couldn't stand to be in his presence. But the guy who was writing the story was determined that he wasn't going to miss anything of God, and so he stayed, and he was the last person sitting next to Smith Wigglesworth in this tent until he said he was on the floor. He could no longer cope with the weight of God's glory, and he said, I had to crawl out because I knew if I didn't leave, I would die. Maybe he wouldn't have died, but that's what he felt. And then he says he got out the tent, and as soon as he got out the tent, he got out of the glory of God's presence, and it lifted, and he could stand up again, and he turned around, and he looks into the tent, and Smith is just sitting there, enjoying God's presence. And the thing about Smith Wigglesworth is that he wasn't more righteous than any of those other priests or pastors. If you think, obviously, we think about the apostles, we think about you know, John who had these revelations of Jesus and had these amazing experiences. But we can also go back to the Old Testament and we think of Moses, this man who spoke face to face with God before Jesus died. You think of Abraham, whose faith was credited to him as righteousness. These, these, these men who had this deep connection and fellowship with Jesus. And I love Wigglesworth because he's a man, and he's a pretty broken man before he was met by the Holy Spirit. And the thing is, I know that Smith would not say he was more holy. And on this spectrum, he's back here. He would consider himself back here. But he knew something. He had faith in something that allowed him to be in the glory of God and have no fear. Can we try and wrap our heads and our hearts? Maybe it's so foreign we don't even know how to even begin thinking about that. But he was able to be in God's presence where no one else around him could stand the glory. Okay, because he knew God. And I believe he modeled some of the things that I want to say tonight. Um, also, I don't want this to depress you, okay? Um, but I told a half-truth a few weeks ago. And it's not a lie, it's a half-truth. They're different, okay? <laughs> so at the, when we started the series, um, Super Bowl Sunday, and, and, I, and I said that I, I had this incredibly intense day with God, if you, those of you might remember, um, about two hours before the service, I was walking around my farm trying to work out what was going on. 
asking what was going on, and, and eventually the, the weight of what I was feeling had me on my knees, and I was weeping, and it was just bizarre. I've never faced or felt um, opposition like this before. Um, and, and I said to you that when I said, I asked the Lord, Lord, what is this? What is, what is this that I'm feeling? And I told you that the, the Lord said to me, this is the weight of your sin. Okay, but it wasn't just mine. This was the half-truth. It was, when he said yours, it was plural. And it was us as a body. This is the sin of kingdom life. This is the sin of the people in this body. And um, again, I don't say that to depress you. Because the first thing that... First thing that astounded me was that if this was the weight of sin of one little church, I have no comprehension of what Jesus did for us on the cross, bearing sin for all time, for all people. But the joy of that was that the next thing that he said to me was, I want you to preach on sin because I want to lift the sin of my children. And that's been his promise over this whole time. And I've had quite a few people come up to me and say that they've really enjoyed this series and it's really surprised them because, you know, we thought talking about sin would be depressing. And yet if we actually confront sin, if we bring it into the light, then God is faithful and He forgives us and He heals us and He restores us. But still tonight, if this is the last time I preach on sin for a little while, certainly the last one in this series, that we're going to finish with prayer, we're going to finish with communion, and I know that there is grace here tonight. If there's still that one thing that you haven't given up or there's one thing you're still struggling with, bring it to God tonight. And don't leave this building if you can't say that I am righteous before God. Matt's going to ask you on the way out and he won't let you out of you. So, uh, <laughs> so um, I said I wanted to talk about um, not, sin, not sinning anymore, okay? Um, obviously, we sin, don't we? Okay? Obviously, we sin. But as you, as you think about your standards and your experiences, and as we think about the promises of Scripture, I, I, I'm, I'm curious, and this is rhetorical, okay? I'm not going to make you list your sins or anything. I'm curious where you kind of draw the line in your expectations, where you draw the line in your heart or your spirit, even just implicitly. Like, what's your expectation of yourself? Maybe I can go two weeks without sinning. Maybe I can go six months. Maybe I can be holy for a season. Maybe I have no hope from breaking out of habitual sin. And it might not be something that you've ever said to yourself explicitly, but as I speak tonight, ask yourself this question. Have you drawn a line in terms of your expectations of what God can do. Because your flesh has just been so powerful and strong for your whole life. You just can't see another side of it. So think about that. Okay, but before I go back to the question of do we, um, you know, can we not sin, let's just, let's just deal with forgiveness, okay, first of all. Because um, this should be an easy one for us. But I know that a lot of us still struggle with shame. And we still struggle with bringing things to God over and over again. And that he's disappointed with us. And will he forgive us? So I'm just going to read some scriptures just to make sure we've got clarity on this. Ephesians 1.7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace. Colossians 1.13. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. 
Psalm 103, 12. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Hebrews 8, 10 and 12. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God. And they shall be my people. I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins, and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. And I, I know this scripture means, I know all scripture means it's important to God, but a few weeks ago I was, struck, I was wrestling with some sin and some stuff, and I had a dream, and Matt was, I was praying with Matt in this dream, and Matt said to me in the dream, you have to read Hebrews 8, 10 through 12. And so I did. And I read that God doesn't remember my sins anymore. He doesn't remember them anymore. You have no right to shame if you have asked for forgiveness. He doesn't give you that right. He doesn't remember them. So we should all be able to agree that we are forgiven. And the next step from knowing that we are forgiven is to know that we are holy and we are righteous in Christ. Not just that the Father looks at us through Jesus and so we escape the wrath of God, but that Jesus imputes his righteousness to us. He makes us able to come into the presence of the Father. And if we think about the gospel, is it too much to imagine that even with our minds we know that sin is an issue and we probably will sin again, okay? (laughs) And we've dealt with this over the last few months, that we have a flesh and we live in the world that's sinful and there is a devil who opposes us. There are these things that will try and draw sin out of us. Okay, but sin is not supposed to be the norm anymore. Now it's the exception. Now it's when the flesh gets its way for a little bit, okay, until we put it back in its place. Because the promises of Scripture are profound, and I'm going to go back through some of the Scriptures we've looked at in this series. And I know for some of us who are stuck in cycles of sin and cycles of shame that this is difficult. Okay? But we don't have a Savior who is kind of passively observing us, wondering if we're ever going to get this right. Jesus is passionate about our redemption and our healing, and not just our salvation when we go to heaven, but our salvation now, our sozo, okay, making us new, bringing us life now. He is passionate about this. He's not neutral. He died that we would have life. And we have a Father who sent His Son that we would have life and not walk in sin and not walk in shame. We have a father that scripture shows us is modeled on this man who runs to his wayward son and restores him with authority. Do not let shame stop you coming to the father. Okay, again, he doesn't give us that option. Okay, this is one of the scriptures that we've dealt with um, John 14, 15, one of the greatest scriptures. If you love me, keep my commandments. It's pretty basic, isn't it? If you love me, keep my commandments. Matt, you love Jesus. Keep his commandments. Okay. It's great, isn't it? Except, what if you don't? Did you sin? Then you don't love Jesus. Pity. And that's often how we read this. 
oh, there's a standard. I've got to get to that standard over there. If I truly love him, I'll show him I love him by not sinning. And that's not what he is saying. Right? The scripture, Jesus is speaking to the future, to those who are filled, by my, filled with his spirit, that we will love him, and in loving him, we will not sin. Okay? It's the love that draws out the sinlessness, not the other way around. Our sinlessness does not draw Jesus' love to us. Okay? That love is never changing. That love cannot be broken. Nothing can cut us off from the love of Christ. Okay? No angel, no demon, no sin. Okay? But sinlessness will flow from love. So what Jesus is promising us here is if, if we love him, okay, as we love him, in love with him, we will sin less. We just will, because we will not hurt the one that we love. Some of us do that, don't we? We hurt the ones that we love, and it sucks. When we love him, as we love him, and as we grow in love with him, sin will decline. If you want to know how to not sin, fall more deeply in love with Jesus. Okay? Maria? Fall more deeply in love with Jesus. <laughs> so, let's look at some other scriptures. 1 John 3, 8. Whoever abides in him does not sin. Okay, we looked at that one as well. Okay, and it's an intention. It's an intention with something John says earlier in First John, where he admits that we will sin, but then that's the flesh. Okay, but that the more we abide in Him, sin is no longer our nature. Sin is no longer what will define us. Sin is no longer the norm. But can we, instead of thinking, "Well, I know I sin," so am I abiding? Can we start to believe the potential of that promise? Okay, and make that promise what we cling to. Paul's words in Romans that we read last week, sin will not have dominion over you, for you are not under law but under grace. Sin will not have dominion. Can we start to grab that and say, well, this is scripture, so it's probably true. It is true, okay? Sin will not have dominion over you because we are not under law. We are under grace. We are not under law. We will not feed the flesh. We're not in that system which brings out sin. We never doubt Jesus' power to cancel our sin. I don't think. I hope not. I hope we don't doubt our salvation. Nor should we doubt his ability to break the bondage of sin and the bondage of hopelessness, and the bondage of shame. That dominion cannot stand against Jesus. Jesus says this in John 17, 19, and I give myself as a holy sacrifice for them so they can be, so they can be made holy by your truth. Jesus died that we would be holy. And we have to start believing this. Because this is the real simple truth about Smith Wigglesworth and other people like him, is that they believe what Scripture says. They're not taking Bible classes. No apologies to Bible professors at Taylor. Okay? They're not just taking classes and learning about God. Okay? They are... <laughs> Wigglesworth knows Jesus. 
He's in love with Jesus. He believes that when Jesus says you'll be free from sin, he meant what he said. Okay, when the word of God says that, you live out of that. And again, when we sin, we're not breaking the truth of Scripture. Okay, you just go back a little bit early in Romans and you repent and you get back in, back into grace. Works will not get us there. Okay, our freedom from sin is always and only ever going to be in grace, only ever going to be in the realm of grace. It is never going to come through the law. It's never going to come from your performance. The more that you make your performance about your salvation, the more shame you will feel when you fail. You're only setting yourself up for a shame trap. I read from Peter Louis' book last week, and I want you to read this paragraph um, from the same chapter. Too many Christians try but fail to live holy lives because they are trying to do the right things instead of understanding that they have become the right things. When you understand that you have become the righteousness of God, you will no longer try to do righteous things. You will simply let His nature that He has given you manifest. Let Him manifest. And the thing is, when we get into the law, when we try and do it by our works, we actually prevent the Lord working. Okay, we prevent His way his spirit flowing in us. And I really, really, really wanted to do a long sermon on rebellion, but actually, in the end, I didn't feel the Lord saying it was necessary, okay? Which is great. So maybe that's something that we haven't all got wrong with us, which is good. Um, the thing with rebellion, okay, the very heart of rebellion is that we are choosing our way and not God's. Okay, we know rebellion's bad because <laughs> it's called the same as witchcraft in Scripture. Okay? God does not look on it kindly. But every day we have choices. Every day we can rebel against God. Every day we can choose what our flesh wants. We can choose what the world expects of us. We can even give in to the temptations of the evil one. And when we do that, we rebel. And that rebellion is a sin. But the fact that it's a sin is actually... Um, obviously sin is bad, don't get me wrong okay, all sin are bad, all sin cuts us off but the thing with rebellion, when we are turning away from what we know God would have us do and we're turning to our own ways is that we are just slowly squeezing the river of life in us okay. remember what Paul says that the spirit and the flesh are in opposition, okay, they cannot coexist, the same as, that is the same as rebellion, okay, rebellion cannot exist with the spirit of God Rebellion cannot exist with surrender. Rebellion cannot exist with abiding. Okay? We, we must treat rebellion as something that is the enemy of God. We don't toy with it like it's something interesting. We must reject it. Okay? But this goes for all sins, doesn't it? <laughs> we should reject all sins. And you know what? When you rebel, Tyler, this week, because you will at some stage, you just say, Lord, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. This morning I was praying and I was repenting um, of some sin because even I too do sin. And, um, and I said, Lord, I'm so sorry. And I, and I heard the Lord saying, I forgive you. And I said, Lord, I'm so sorry. 
And then I heard Jesus starting to laugh. And I, and I said, Lord, Lord, why are you laughing? And, and, I, and I just heard him saying to the Father, he seems to think that we expect perfection, as if he is capable. And he just started giggling. And all I heard was Jesus giggling at me, as if there was some sort of standard that I'd again felt I had to meet. I don't. I don't have to meet a standard. It's ridiculous. He is my righteousness. Man, there's so much I wanted to put into this final sermon. I'm going to have to skip some stuff, but let me, let me finish with just um, two quick things. Okay. First thing is repentance. We need to stop seeing repentance as a chore. We need to stop seeing repentance as attached to shame. We have to start seeing repentance as an absolutely wonderful, powerful weapon. Okay? Because repentance, remember, when you think about the, the, the evil one, when you think about strongholds, okay, repentance demolishes the enemy's right to our lives. It is absolutely essential that if we have parts of our lives that are not repentant, that is not a part that is holy before the Lord and it's a place where the enemy has a right to go. So repentance is absolutely necessary. Okay. Be quick to repent. And always... Always, and I make a habit of doing this, and you know, we try to do this when we pray, always receive forgiveness. Actually speak that out. Lord, I receive forgiveness. Say it over yourself. Speak it out. And it's not magic, okay? You don't have to say as many words as you possibly can in 30 seconds. You don't have to say it 15 times. You just have to say it once. Repent. Okay, that's the first thing. Second thing, I, I, I've used the, these, these words yield and surrender a lot. Okay, and we've been doing this for 18, two, 18 months, two years, haven't we? Okay, yield, surrender. And it's a little bit like saying you must fall more in love with Jesus where your question, you might be just thinking, well, how? How do I do that? I think I've tried that. I don't know how to do that. Okay, and there, there isn't a checkbox list I can give you. There just isn't, okay? But there are things that, that will lead you into encountering Jesus. And I guarantee you that the way to fall in love with Jesus is to meet him. That I can guarantee. If you meet him, you fall in love with him. You have no option because you've just met love. Okay? And, and honestly, the only, the only house I know, the only house I can speak to, and they'll be different for all of us in different ways, is, is yielding and surrendering. And surrendering is the opposite of rebellion. It is giving up what we want. It is giving up sometimes our preferences, okay? If those are sinful, it's always giving up those preferences. It's choosing his way. And the thing with yielding is that it's internal. And there is something about going on your knees before the Lord. Lying down before him and worshiping him and adoring him. Okay? But you can lie down on your knees and, and be unyielded, and you can be standing and be unyielded. Okay? But there's something about our hearts, our internal disposition. Are we yielded to the Father? Are we yielded to the Son? It means giving up control. And I know us Westerners love that one. Yielding is, is, is lifting up love to Him. 
And you can read your Bible and you can worship and you can do this in a religious way. And you can pray and you can sit quietly and you can worship and you can read your Bible and you can do those with love. And you can lift up love to Him. And as we yield and as we surrender and as we repent, we ask the Holy Spirit's main purpose is to lead us into truth. Okay, and part of truth, part of truth is, is revealing Jesus to us. Right? It's his delight. And remember, it's our Father's delight to be in fellowship with us. He's the one running to us. We don't have to twist his arm. We just have to ask. So will we yield? <coughs> the thing is, I don't know the state of your hearts. Some of you I talk to and I have a little bit of an idea. Some of you I pray with, like Matt, and I, I know exactly what's wrong with him. And right. Uh, <laughs> but this really is between you and God. Okay, it's between you and God. Um, also a reminder as well, because I know we went over this quite quickly. If you, if, the, if you do have a sin that is besetting and you're struggling to get rid of it, you need to pray with other people. Okay? It's the gospel prescription. It's what James tells us to do. Pray with your brothers and sisters. Okay? And the people at Kingdom Life who love to do that. And I can't say that this is a universal truth, okay? But... In all my years of praying for people, all of my experiences personally and when others have prayed for me, when we truly pray with the Holy Spirit and we bring sin into the light, what it actually does is that it strengthens community and it strengthens love. I have never felt judged by someone who has prayed for me when I've confessed my worst sins. I've only seen a deepened relationship with the people who have prayed for me because we are being honest and because the Holy Spirit is working amongst us. What else can the Holy Spirit do but create unity? The good news of the gospel is that Jesus took away our sin. He saved us. That's amazing. But he didn't stop there. Right, we love talking about original design at Kingdom Life. Right, he restores our designs to us. But obviously he doesn't stop there. He restores fellowship to us if we would have it. Intimacy. And this is what I felt the Father saying to us, finally. And it's really simple, but I felt the Lord saying this. Tell my children to come to me. I am the Father who places a robe of righteousness on their shoulders. I am the one who heals and restores. And I felt him saying that even if our flesh cries out and resists, he is saying it's time for my spirit to rule over those parts of your lives, over those parts of my lives. So have hope. So let's spend a few minutes praying. Um, worship team, can you guys come up?